Hello, and welcome to the American Writers Museum podcast, where we bring the power of the written word straight to your ears. Last week, we talked with singer-songwriter Louis Perez, lead singer of Los Lobos. This week, AWM Assistant Director of Programming and Education, Sonal Shukla, chats with Adriana Cuevas, debut author of the middle grade fantasy novel, The Total Eclipse of Nestor Lopez. We hope you enjoy entering the mind of a writer. Hello, and uh, thank you everyone for joining us this evening. Um, I am Sonal Shukla. I am the Assistant Director of Programming and Education at uh, at the American Writers Museum, and I will be uh, moderating this discussion today. Um, a little housekeeping before we begin. Um, as you're getting settled into Zoom here, um, there is uh, we will. Uh, this program is uh, is a part of our Jean and John Rowe program series, My America, Immigrant and Refugee Writers Today, in conjunction with um, AWM's exhibit of the same name. Uh, you can see um, the My America exhibit online at my-america.org. We're so grateful to all of you for being here and for valuing the past, present, and future of American writing. So without further ado, I would, I'm thrilled to be here with uh, Adriana Cuevas, first-generation Cuban-American author of The Total Eclipse of Nestor Lopez, a magical middle-grade book. This book explores the life of Nestor Lopez, a Cuban-American boy who must use his secret ability to communicate with animals to save the inhabitants of his town when they are threatened by a tule vieja, a witch that transforms into animals. Welcome, Adriana. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, as I was reading your book, this is this is your um, this is your debut novel. Um, yes. So, I would like to begin with asking you how how you started out with writing and who and what encouraged you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, when I was in fourth grade, my teacher was actually a published author. And I just thought that that was the most incredible thing ever. She would read her books to us um, in class. And just seeing that person, like, I think a lot of times growing up, you think authors are just almost not real. They're just the books appear. Um, so it was amazing to have her as a teacher. And I think that's really what lit the, the spark at first for me. Um, I think the, the tendency to write has always existed in me. My family will attest that I used to write a family newspaper that I would distribute at like Christmas and would have ridiculous articles. Um, yeah, I think I was already surprisingly snarky for an elementary schooler. <laughs> um, it would, my mother was my seventh and eighth grade science teacher, and she made us read a book over the summer one year, and I made sure to write a scathing review of the book in the family news <laughs> paper for that year. And so I think that right there, uh, just seeing how you could make people like get a strong reaction out of people based on what you were writing and you could make them laugh and, and feel something. And I think I just really um, attached to that. And I feel like I, I pretty much live in my own head most of the time. Um, and so uh, I think surrounding myself with my imagination, just writing helps me get it all out. So um, I think that's kind of what 
got me going to becoming an author. Oh, that's nice. That's, that's, wow, newsletter, huh? <laughs> yeah. I think my mom probably still has copies somewhere. <laughs> oh, that's, that is, wow, that's, 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 that's really nice. I mean, yeah. So, you know, um, there, there are so many genres in writing um, and, you know, and different audiences that you can cater to. Why did you choose to write a middle grade novel? Was that something that you always wanted to write? I don't think always. Um, I was a teacher for 16 years before I started writing full time. And um, during my career, at some point in my career, I taught kindergarten through 12th grade. And experiencing all those different ages, I absolutely loved middle school and junior high the best. I just thought those kids, they were so much fun. Um, they are not so mature that they feel like they have to be serious all the time and they're just too cool for you. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, they are maturing and getting a sense of the world and their place in it and trying to figure things out. And so I just loved how much fun you could have with that age that you could still be silly, but you could balance the, you know, silliness with seriousness. And I, I just like the interplay of those two things. And I think middle grade uh, does that really well. You have some middle grade books that deal with some really, really intense topics, but they do it in such an accessible and age appropriate way um, that I think a lot of other age groups maybe have a little more trouble with. So I just, I love middle grade because I love that age. Um, they're just a lot of fun to not only write for, but to talk about writing with, because they haven't yet learned to censor themselves. Uh, so anything goes. And I just think that's great. And, and that was, that was like, oh, that, that was the magical element also in the book, you know, that, that whole thing. So yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think, yeah, I think that age really um, can show you how creative these kids can get. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so talking about, uh, do you, uh, should I pronounce it Nestor or Nestor? Because Nestor's fine. <laughs> um, how did you come about the story of Nestor uh, Lopez, you know, when, uh, and when did the idea first come to you about, about this particular boy? The idea, I kind of chuckle when people ask me, like, where did you get the idea for this story? Because it was in my very last year of teaching. I was sitting in a faculty meeting <laughs> and I have a very, very short attention span. And so I was trying to amuse myself. And so I had my notebook open. So maybe I wasn't paying attention, um, but I decided I wanted to, I just started writing down ideas of if I wanted to write a book for my son who would have been 10 at the time, um, what kind of story would he want to hear? Uh, and so I just started brainstorming ideas. Um, I'm pretty sure I missed information in the meeting, but that's neither here nor there at this point. <laughs> um, and he is absolutely obsessed with zoology. He tells us of the many things he wants to be when he grows up. One of those is a marine biologist. And he loves to sit on our bed with this massive animal encyclopedia that we bought him. And he'll just flip through it mom, did you know this? Did you know this? And he'll read me different facts or he'll read me a fact and I have to guess what animal he's talking about. And I'm really bad at that. Um, <laughs> but taking that interest of his, that's where the character started. I knew that I wanted to have a boy 
who had a special connection with animals. Um, and then it morphed from there. Um, and I took the experience of my husband being in the military and that fed its way into the story as well. Um, and so really to me, it's a family story because I took my culture, my son's interests and my husband's experiences. And now we have a book. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, and, and I was, and, um, and my, actually my next question to you was uh, based on Nestor's experience, you know, as a military child moving from one city to the other. I, I know it can be really difficult because I, and, and I connected with the character on that level that, you know, that, that whole bit of um, how it feels to be new every single time you go somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and I was about to ask you, was that based on, on, a, on a personal experience? Like, how did you come about that angle? Because it, it is, it, it, it makes the character the character mm -hmm. uh, in the book. So can, can you talk a little bit about that? No, absolutely. Because you're right, it does. I think the, the main issue for Nestor in the book is his sense of home and how he really doesn't have one at the beginning of the story. Um, although my husband was in the military, we never did the moving and all of that. Um, but what did happen to us was we were married, um, I guess 10 months before 9-11. And so uh, we realized that by the time we celebrated our, I guess four or five year anniversary, we had spent maybe a year and a half together because he kept getting deployed. And so I took those emotions of us being separated so much. And that's kind of what informs Nestor feeling of his dad being gone. Um, in the moving sense, though, uh, we moved to Texas about four years ago. Um, but in that process between housing issues and job changes, I realized that by the time we actually landed where we are right now, my son had lived in five different houses in the span of like maybe five years. <laughs> and so I could tell, I at the time didn't think that that had had a big effect on him until we moved here and he made my husband and I promise absolutely promise we had to say it out loud that we were not moving <laughs> for a while um and so i think i took those feelings of my son uh just always feeling uprooted and you know having to sleep on a fold-out couch because we're staying with you know my in-laws and that kind of thing um just feeling disconnected and like you don't really have anywhere to plant your feet um right. so i think those two things even though i haven't had that military experience of moving from base to base those two things kind of inform how Nestor feels about that. Yeah, and it's yeah, it it shows in the complexity of uh, of Nestor's character in the book. You know that that it does, and and I think it's it's very beautifully brought out as well. Uh, how children, you know, sort of cope with this whole situation. How absolutely how difficult it is for them, and um, I really liked that complexity in that character. It was it was really really well brought out. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I, I noticed one thing as I was reading the book. Um, there are a lot of Spanish verses. I, um, I, I, I am particularly fond of languages. I, I, you know, every time um, Abuela would say something and, you know, and Nesta would reply, I would try and imagine that conversation happening. Um, was, so, I, I know you've kept most of the, you know, the phrases um, as authentic as as it is, as, as they were being said aloud. 
Um, were there any, uh, was there any point, because I know that, you know, that there are times when if you're translating between two languages, it often, there are some things that lose essence, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and I think people who write in multiple languages often come, um, come about that problem. So was, was there any point that uh, in the book where this was, uh, this has sort of been an issue where you really couldn't translate it and you just wanted it to be the way it was? In the book itself, um, I don't know that I used many untranslatable phrases only because my, I love putting Spanish in my books. Absolutely. But my, my kind of big thing that I'm very adamant about is that I don't actually like translating what is being said. I prefer to um, imply the meaning through context. So you have to kind of read the passage as a whole in order to understand what the conversation is. Um, in that sense, that let me get away with saying a lot of different things because I knew I didn't have to directly translate it. It was just the sense of it was going to be felt um, in the passage. So I think like the, the goodbye phrase that um, Nestor and Abuela use, you know, um, where th it's a nonsense phrase because it's like, see you later, alligator, you know, um, but that was okay because you could just, you knew based on the scene, they were saying bye. So it didn't really matter what the specific words are. And Spanish does have a lot of untranslatable phrases. Um, I was actually talking to my dad and asking him about someone and unfortunately the first one that popped into both of our minds was a curse word and I was like I don't think I should use that one as an example but <laughs> but one of the ones we always say to each other because the great thing about Spanish is it's like English it depends on where you are from and how you speak English and Spanish is the same way because a lot of the phrases that I use, in my opinion, not only make only sense to Cuban Americans, I'd almost say that they really only make sense to those who've left Cuba and those, you know, second generation, those of us who the language has evolved as we all left. Um, so like we always say ponte las pilas to each other and it literally means put on the batteries, but that sounds weird to say that to somebody because what you're really telling them is like, get going, get yourself in gear. Um, and then I have a lot of friends when I announced my book deals or whenever something good happens, they'll tell me, te la comiste, which actually means you ate it, <laughs> but it's like saying you did an awesome job. So I love phrases like that because I'm a language nerd like you. Oh my goodness. Absolutely love it. Um, but to me, yeah, it's also fascinating to see, like, I can say one of those phrases in Spanish and a fellow Spanish speaker could possibly not have any idea what my meaning really is. Like, why are you talking about batteries? <laughs> um, because it's just, it's so different depending on where you're from. Right, right. And, and it's, and it, um, it, it just, it, it basically, it takes the whole fun out of the phrase, you know? Like exactly. Oh, translating, it's the worst. <laughs> Yeah. It, uh, and, and you're right, you know, whatever, um, wh whenever I read a sentence, you know, like um, Abuela and Nestor's, you know, bye-bye, uh, mm -hmm. was um, it, it, it clearly, you know, you said it in the context. In, in, if you were reading the whole thing, you would exactly know what they were talking about. Right. So, yeah, I mean, languages are weird. 
so coming uh, coming back to the uh, to the reference of you know uh, you being cuban american uh, there are often immigrant writers often don't feel represented in literature of their youth um what is the value of seeing yourself um reflected in a book at a young age well i think for kids regardless of what identity is being expressed in a book, be it a culture, um, a gender identity, a socioeconomic status, religion, neurodiverse, whatever it is. I think for a kid to be able to see someone that looks like them, sounds like them, is in a similar situation, um, that's one more thing that makes the story real to them. For me, I love stories that have those characters, but the story itself is not about being that thing. Like, it's not about, it's not a story about this is what it's like to be Cuban-American. It's a fantasy story that has a Cuban-American character, and that identity is expressed, but it's not a, a theme of the book. And I think it's really important for kids to see that because they can see that, okay, I'm like this character, but I can still have adventures. I can still be the hero. I can save the day, you know, make jokes, fail, whatever. And so I think that it really helps kids to see that anything is possible. So I think it makes a big difference that we do have such a wide variety in Kidlet of identities shown and expressed because I, I think it helps kids, one, realize that reading and stories can be for everybody. Um, and then it helps them feel like the story's more real. So I think, I think it's, I love that it seems like more and more stories like that are coming out because I'm hoping that will make a lot more kids be into reading and to telling stories. Right. And, um, and I think often what kids um, look for is relatability, you know, in terms of, Absolutely. Um, in terms of how, and is someone there out there like me? Uh, mm -hmm. How do, how do I, um, and, and it's um, and so for talking from the perspective of an identity, um, uh, do you think kids, uh, you know, they, they, they connect with characters on levels probably you and I wouldn't, you know, it's 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 really different. But um, but in terms of connecting with a kid like Nestor, who is, you know, who is Cuban American, uh, who has, you know, this. Uh, family uh, setting is different, you know, he's with his abuela and his mom. Um, do you think kids, um, in terms of identifying with a character like that, in terms of identifying with, um, I know the feeling when I went to a new school, do you think kids would be able to, uh, you know, sort of relate more to this than if probably me, like an adult who's reading that book, if I haven't been through that experience? I think that's why, you know, it's good to write, as an author, you want to write characters that you feel you can make real by making them fully formed. So you want to make them multidimensional. I think if I had just stopped with Nestor is a military kid and he's Cuban-American, it's just what you said. Well, a kid might not that be that thrilled with the book if they 
one, are not curious about either of those identities or don't relate to them. So I really tried to stuff his character with as many things as I could. And I will admit that I stole a lot from my own son, which is why Nestor collects Pokemon cards and he has boxes full of dart guns. Um, you know, and he's, he's a little bit sarcastic and then he loves animal trivia. Um, and so, and he, you know, he's obsessed with his abuela's cooking. And so I was trying to give enough personality to him that kids could relate to him in some way, even if it was just, Hey, there's a kid here who collects Pokemon cards, just like I do, you know, anything they could latch onto so that they connected to the story and wanted to keep reading. Um, I think it's really important as a writer that you, you try to create a whole character and not let one identity just be the one that drives them. Right. That's yeah. That is so correct. Um, was it, was it important that, uh, that, you know, that talking about the whole cooking, I know food is um, always a part of, you know, everyone's heritage that they bring to the table. So was it important that your heritage uh, that uh, for you to represent your heritage in this book? And if so, why? I, I think, yeah, I mean, it was important in the sense that as a Cuban American writer, that's how I'm going to write. I, I want to say it, it wasn't a deliberate choice. If, if I'm writing what I know, that's what I know, you know? So, but then I realized it's a lot of fun to write that. Um, I had a blast writing the abuela because it made me think of my own abuela and her purple tinged hair because she didn't want to go gray. <laughs> and, you know, um, it was, it was my way to honor my family and my history, especially as someone who's first generation where when my family left Cuba, they couldn't bring anything with them. So the things that we have that are preserving our history are our language, which I shoved in the book, food, recipes, which I shoved in the book, and then the stories that we've told each other, you know? So like when Nestor's sitting down with his abuela and he's complaining about his bad day and she just doesn't understand what it's like to move a lot and she lays into him and, and basically tells her story of coming to the U.S., that's my dad's story, um, what she says. And so that was kind of my way of honoring him in that. Um, so I think, yes, it's important for me to express my culture, but I don't know that I would know how to write any other way. You know, if my characters aren't eating, they're not existing. So... <laughs> Like I said, uh, every, for every head, I think everyone around us, food can be the talking point for yes. all of <laughs> um, What do you think um, should be the takeaway from this book? For me, I always, I like to keep my audience in mind. Like, I know what I want my takeaway to be from fellow writers and, and teachers and like, oh, she can write a good book. Okay. But from my audience, from, from students, from kids, I really think more than just a thematic takeaway, for me, books have always been an escape. It's been a way to explore a new world, to um, learn about a new experience. And so my takeaway is, honestly, it's pretty simple. I want kids to just finish the book and have had a good time and have enjoyed a story, have laughed. Um, and yeah, maybe they've learned a little bit new. Um, they've gotten a sense that home can be whatever you make it. 
Um, but more than anything, I just, I kind of want it to just be an escape. That's nice. Um, was there, was there a specific reason you chose? I know you just said that you, it was, you know, based sort of based on your move to Texas. Was Texas as a setting, was, was that, was it deliberate? Was it something that just occurred to you or what, what was, what was the reason behind choosing Texas? It was a deliberate choice. And it's just what you said. I had just moved there. Um, and I live in central Texas and I absolutely love it. I think it's gorgeous. We have great wildflowers and it, it doesn't look anything, anything like where I grew up in Miami. Um, and so that, that difference struck me. Um, and so I felt like I was exploring a new place, just like Nestor's exploring a new place. So to me, Texas was a natural choice because I felt like my character and I were both learning about our environment at the same time. And the, so the, the, there was a point in the book where, where I found it very interesting that Nestor refused to write emails, you know, and like, it's something that is so common, you know, uh, at our museum, we have typewriters and I see the excitement in children whenever they come, <laughs> they're like, oh my God. <laughs> uh, but instead of instead of focusing on writing an email to his, uh, you know, dad uh, that would reach him sooner, he chooses to write letters. Um, it's sort of a skill that seems a little bit forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> was was this particular aspect um, um, a, a deliberate choice to pres to bring Nestor's character more? It was um, twofold, I guess, deliberate from a writer's standpoint, because Nestor loves to draw, because he's an artist, he always has pencil and paper with him. He always has his notebook and something to write with. So it's very easy for him to, it was easy for me as a writer to incorporate that into a scene where he could just flip open his notebook and jot down a message to his dad. From a more realistic standpoint, I talked to my husband um, and he said, you know, when he was overseas, you were never sure what kind of technology access you were going to have. And then he preferred letters because if it was an email, once he clicked off the computer, that was it. He couldn't read it. And if he was out in the field, but if he had a letter from me, he could put it in his pocket and read it anytime he wanted to. And I really liked that idea with Nestor that his dad would be carrying around the letters that Nestor has sent him so that he could read them anytime he wanted. I liked that connection um, between them. And so that's why they write so much. <laughs> Well, um, you know, I, I, I think I think the the connection between Nestor and his dad is is very um, it's very heartwarming, you know, to uh, to connect uh, to to connect with with the the character that way. Um, I I think I think these are all the questions from my end. Uh, <laughs> would you Would you like to uh, read a passage from your book? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. So the, um, the passage that I picked, um, it's chapter six and just a little bit of context. Nestor has seen his abuela go stomping off into the woods holding a kitchen knife, which I think we can all agree is an odd sight for anyone to see their grandmother doing, but he hasn't had the guts to ask her what's going on. He knows something weird is happening in the woods. There's animals that are disappearing. There's a little bit of talk in town 
of does his grandmother have anything to do with this? Um, and he's also still trying to keep it secret from his friend Talib that he has this ability to talk to animals. So in this scene, um, he and Talib are going out into the woods and those two issues kind of come up all of a sudden. So this is from chapter six. Don't go in the dark, musty basement with creaking stairs and flickering lights. Don't answer the phone when you're home alone and the caller ID says, axe murderer. Don't enter the decaying abandoned building covered in suffocating vines and bloody handprints. I've seen enough horror movies to know what you are and aren't supposed to do if you want to survive. Don't walk through the woods in your town when you've seen your abuela stomp off into the trees with a knife. I guess Talib and I aren't that smart. After hearing Brandon brag about shooting a deer with his dad, I wanted to check on Chela, the doe I met yesterday, even though Miss Humala told us to stay out of the woods. When Talib saw me take off into the trees after school, he tagged along, saying I shouldn't go alone. As we tromped down the path, I noticed Talib's dark eyes dart around every live oak tree and scan every rocky hill, searching for some unknown threat ready to devour us whole. Talib picks up an acorn and launches it at a tree trunk. He misses by a foot. The acorn bounces down the trail ahead of us, scaring lizards and squirrels who scamper under fallen leaves and branches. So is your dad really strict about keeping your room neat and making your bed since he's in the military? I laugh. I have a Cuban mom and a Cuban grandma. The military is nothing compared with them when it comes to keeping a house clean. I can hear the sound of mom's clicking tongue as she juts out her chin, pointing to the dirty clothes on my floor or my unmade bed. Nothing makes me clean faster than her raised eyebrow. And now she has abuela as reinforcement when she's not home. Talib shakes his head. Sounds like my mom. I watch Talib's darting eyes. I ask, are you looking for something out here? Seems like you are. Talib stops in his tracks. I, uh, I was hoping to find my dog, George. Your dog's name is George? Yeah, he disappeared last week. I've been looking for him. Talib's eyes dart to a cedar tree with three long, jagged marks on it. His eyes grow wide and he draws in a sharp breath. They look like scratches from a claw. You think your dog might be running around the woods? Talib scuffs his foot in the dirt. Well, no, not anymore, I don't think. This isn't making much sense, but Talib doesn't seem to want to say any more about George's mysterious disappearance. I continue down the trail and my stomach growls in protest. Let's keep going, man, I'm hungry, I tell Talib. He follows me, but only after glancing at the claw-marked tree trunk one last time. We pass the spot where I sketched Chela yesterday, though she's nowhere to be found. I stop and scan the hills around us, noticing a glint under a mesquite bush. I hurry over and see the blade of a large kitchen knife plunged into the root of the bush. Small bits of thin white paper surround the knife. I look closer and realize it's not paper, it's snakeskin. Kicking the dirt over the shed skin, I stand in front of the knife as Talib approaches. I thought we were gonna keep going, he says, his voice shaky. He pushes on my arm to urge me forward. What are you so scared of? I'm sorry your dog is gone, but what's the deal? Between the knife, the claw mark, and the snakeskin, I'm begging to, I'm beginning to suspect there's plenty to be scared of in these woods, but I don't want Talib to think my abuela has anything to do with it. Talib wipes his nose with the back of his hand. I went looking for George out here a couple of nights ago and I saw something. What did you see? Talib stands there and stares at me, his mouth mutely opening and closing, trying to find the words. Well, I found George's collar by a big cactus and then when I went to pick it up, I heard growling. I thought maybe it was him, even though George doesn't really growl like that. 
I saw this big furry brown thing with huge teeth and claws. It was absolutely, most definitely not a dog. Talib's eyebrows raised, but then it changed. I shake my head, unsure I heard Talib correctly. It what? Before he can explain, I hear a shout and a cry. Talib opens his mouth to speak, but I'm not paying attention anymore. The cries grow louder, echoing over the hills. Help, help. I look at Talib. Do you hear that? What, the howling? No, somebody calling for help. Talib scrunches his eyebrows at me, but I take off running toward the sound. Help, please help. The cries pierce my ears. Talib follows me, breathing hard. We crest the top of a hill and spot a figure below us writhing in the dirt next to a large century cactus. It's a coyote. The small reddish animal tries to stand, but his back leg is caught in a clamp of interlocked large metal teeth. With each strain against the round clamp, the coyote yelps and stumbles on the ground. What is that? Talib asks. I shake my head. It's a hunting trap. It must have snapped around that coyote's leg the second he stepped on it. Talib winces. That doesn't seem right. It's not. Hunters use them to trap animals, sometimes predators they want off their land, sometimes animals they're hunting for fur. Dad says they're cruel. An animal can stay trapped for days in it and starve to death. Please help me, please, the coyote cries, saliva frothing at the corners of his mouth. I run over and kneel down next to the injured animal. The coyote bares his teeth and growls, not knowing if I'm friend or foe. I raise my hands. It's okay, I'm not here to hurt you. I'm gonna help you. You can understand me, the coyote asks. Yes, I can, I tell him. Yes, you can what, Talib asks behind me. Nothing, I say, shaking my head. One problem at a time. What are you going to do, Nestor, Talib asks, coming closer and kneeling down next to me. We need to release the trap from around his leg. Talib examines the trap. It's a half circle of sharp metal teeth folded together. This is one of Brandon's, I'm sure of it. He and his dad aren't exactly known for their legal hunting methods. I clench my hands into fists. This Brandon kid is steadily rising on my list of people I'd like to see rocketed to the surface of Mars without a spacesuit. I keep my hands on the coyote, rubbing his fur and reassuring him that he'll be okay. His body is warm and rises up and down as he pants. Talib presses two round tabs on either end of the trap and it snaps open with a click. It's okay, buddy, you're free, I tell the coyote as he lets out a soft yelp. He tries to stand on his back leg, but his small body falls into the dirt. I can't walk, it hurts too much. Okay, let me help, let me carry you, will that be all right? Behind me, I hear Talib clear his throat. Nestor, are you talking to that coyote? I ignore his question. I'm not sure how I would answer it anyway. I'm not ready yet. Talib seems like a good guy, but I don't want to send him screaming by revealing my secret. Picking up the coyote in my arms, I'm careful not to put pressure on his back leg. Talib and I continue down the trail with the injured animal. I can't believe he's letting you carry him, Talib says. Oh, I must have a way with animals, I tell him. The coyote shudders in my arms. Somebody's not telling the truth, he says. Shush, I whisper, scratching behind his ear with my finger. Talib and I pass a thick patch of mesquite trees when I hear stomping along the trail behind us. We turn and see Brandon, his face red and his fists clench. That coyote's mine, you thieves, he snarls, kicking dirt at us with his untied shoe. Traps are illegal in these woods, you moron, I snap back. I haven't lived in New Haven long, but Dad always makes sure I know the rules wherever we go. Brandon rushes towards me, eyes on fire. His feet skid in the dirt inches from us. He leans forward, his nose almost touching mine. His hot breath blows in my face. I smell traces of the rubbery chicken fingers served in the cafeteria today. Out of the corner of my eye, I see Talib bend down and pick up a rock. 
That animal should have stayed in the trap, Brandon hisses, poking me in the chest with his finger. The coyote in my arm raises his head and clamps his small, sharp teeth around Brandon's finger. Brandon screams and draws his bloody index finger back, wrapping his other hand around it. He huffs and stomps away from us, shouting over his shoulder, this isn't over. I look at Talib, whose fingers are still clenched tight around the rock. His chest heaves up and down. What were you planning to do with that? Talib looks down at his hand. I don't know, maybe juggle to distract him? I chuckle. Come on, let's go. We head toward our houses and the coyote snuggles in close to my body. The sun starts to dip below the tree line, sending snaking shadows across our path. Talib walks behind me, flinging his rock into the mesquite bushes. Uh, Nestor, what exactly are you planning to do with that coyote? I think for a moment, considering my options. Do you think my abuela would be okay with a new pet? I ask. Talib laughs and slaps my back. Oh, sure, buddy. I'll bring flowers to your funeral. You like roses or tulips? He takes off towards his house, just a block away from mine, and I keep going until I see the blue paint of Abuela's house. As I walk closer, the coyote raises his head and mumbles, don't let her get me. I look down at his trembling body. Don't you mean him? The coyote presses into my chest and I feel his pounding heartbeat. No, her. Don't let the witch get me. Ta-da. <laughs> really, really nice. Thank you so much, Adriana, for coming in today and talking. Thank to you. It's wonderful talking to you. It was very and nice talking to you as well. I appreciate the invite. Of course. And everyone, please read the book. Um, it is amazing. It is a beautifully written book. Um, and thank you, Adriana. I hope you know you have a wonderful day ahead. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of the American Writers Museum podcast. National Hispanic Heritage Month continues next week with poet Juan Felipe Herrera, the first Latino to be named U.S. Poet Laureate, who'll talk about his new collection, Every Day We Get More Illegal. Now go, be inspired, and find the mind of a writer in yourself.